Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everyone, back to another edition of New Books in Education. This is your host, Ryan Allen, and I'm excited today uh, to bring on Chris uh, Lubienski and his new book, uh, The Public School Advantage, Why Public Schools Outperform Private Schools, uh, which he wrote with uh, Sarah Lubienski. And uh, just a, a quick how we kind of got connected. Uh, I really love Twitter. I love social media. And just randomly happened to find each other on there and uh, set up the interview, and, and now here we are. So if you if you're inclined, you can you can go follow uh, Chris at C L U B underscore E D U uh, C Lub underscore E D U, and you can also follow me at at uh, Politics and Ed. So uh, Chris, thank you uh, for joining me today. Thanks, Ryan. It's good to talk to you. I really enjoy your series here. Fantastic, fantastic. So um, you're at uh, University of uh, Illinois uh, Urbana-Champaign, um, but can you tell me just maybe briefly uh, how you, um, how kind of this project came together, how you got interested in in this debate? Sure, that's a, that's a great question. Um, uh, Sarah and I uh, were working on this together, and um, going back to before we were interested, I mean, we went to graduate school at a time when there was pretty much an assumption that um, private schools um, outperform public schools. There's the so-called private school effect. And this goes back to some of the research in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, turns out that, you know, even at that time, that research was disputed. But nonetheless, I, th- I think that was kind of the, the received wisdom at the time we were going through our, our doctoral programs. So we, it wasn't a question that we were particularly focused on. Um, now, Sarah and I disagree somewhat about uh, the, the time and place that this came together. Um, <laughs> we, we can't really remember when, when we first had this conversation. But she was doing some, some analysis of NAEP for um, her work in mathematics education. And she was looking at some large-scale data sets um, to focus on instruction in mathematics. And she added public and private as, um, as variables to consider. And um, as, as we all know, you know, private schools, their raw scores tend to be higher than, than public schools. And the question is, is that because they're better schools, you know, the so-called private school effect, or is that because they're serving, quote-unquote, better students? Mm. And when she added those variables and she started to, um, to see when you're looking at demographically comparable students, um, actually the public schools were outscoring that. So she called me over because she knows I've been interested in, in privatization and, and a lot of the reform movement. And so we started looking at this in more detail and uh, eventually got a grant from the federal government to, to consider this in, in, in greater depth. And, uh, yeah, that was the start of, of, of this work. Okay, absolutely. That that's uh, quite interesting. And I, I'm a, a child of 
uh, public school education. I think my mom always sort of uh, regretted a little bit not sending me to to a private school. So she's going to be happy to to hear this uh, this interview. I think. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to make your mother happy. <laughs> um, if if we could, you mentioned NAEP already. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit more and just explain what that is and and sort of how you use that data set? Sure. NAEP is one of the two data sets we used in, in this book. Um, the NAEP is National Assessment of Education Progress. And uh, many people consider it to be the gold standard for um, education achievement in the U.S. It's considered to be a very good measure of, of student and school performance. So it's uh, administered by the by the federal government, uh, and they, they, um, they do this every few years, uh, and... Well, I'm sorry. At the time we did this, they were, we had first looked at the 2000 mm-hmm. name data, and then we looked at it again three years later. Um, and it, it's nationally representative samples of, of uh, public and private schools. Um, as a matter of fact, they over oversample private schools to make sure that they have um, enough schools in the sample that we can mm-hmm. we can say things with some statistical confidence. Um, and anyways, in the, this particular administration, we're looking at over a third of a million students, and I think it's over 13,000 uh, private and charter schools. So uh, the, the NAEP administration we looked at was the first one that included charter schools um, as a separate category. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was a lot of, I think, enthusiasm or even optimism that that would prove that charter schools were outperforming um, public schools uh, but there's a little, you know, little controversy there. They didn't release the data at first, and um, that made people wonder why. And sure enough, in, in these data, there, there are reasons to question charter school achievement. Mm. Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to maybe uh, jump in that a little bit more? Like, uh, what, what was it showing from charter schools? That's, I think, the one of the biggest debates currently in in education today, public education, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a really interesting question. Um, uh, the question is whether or not charter schools are more effective because if you look at the origins of the, the movement in particular as it expanded in the 1990s there was a lot of um, anticipation that these schools would be freed from bureaucratic regulations they would have more autonomy to respond to what the, the students wanted um, and so for, for those types of reasons it was thought that they would do a better job of serving students well as I mentioned when um, the, the federal government first started uh, looking at uh, charter schools as a part of the NAEP sample in 2003, uh, and there was there was um, some expectations, I think, from charter advocates in the Department of Education that that would prove that they're doing better. But then they sat on the data, and um, mm-hmm. they they weren't releasing that, and uh, so people were were wondering what's happening with this. Uh, then a couple of researchers at um, AFT. Uh, we're able to, to do some data mining in the, the web tool and we're able to, to pull out charter school achievement. And it was a really simple study at the, um, at the time. They were only able to look at one variable at a time, if I remember, in addition to achievement. And, but they did find that charter schools are actually um, quite a bit behind uh, other public schools. Um, it led to a big um, controversy. There were uh, books published about it. There was a full-page ad in the New York Times attacking that study. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was at that time that Sarah and I were actually looking at the raw data, which included charter schools. And, and uh, you know, we, we knew that we would be able to do a much more nuanced, sophisticated analysis um, of, of these data, which would include charter schools as well as different types of private schools and, and look at their relative performance. Right, right. And so in, in this uh, in the study and in the book, you basically find that 
public schools uh, are, are when, when you sort of level out everything, they're actually essentially doing better than, than right. private right. schools and even charter schools as well. That's correct. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I can talk about our, um, our, our findings and how um, they've been affirmed or challenged by other people with respect to private schools. I'm happy to do that. But I also say with charter schools, this is kind of part of a, um, a general trend we're seeing in a lot of the research. Um, that charter schools are not generally performing much better, if at all, compared to, to um, public schools. Um, and instead, they're um, quite often, and I would say too often, um, not doing as well as as demographically comparable public schools. And I think some people have been surprised by that. Now, that's not to say that there's not some you know terrific charter schools. There are, but I think they're fewer and farther between than people were expecting when when the movement got started. Mm, right, right. So, I guess your your book really challenges this uh, paradigm that I think has become popular in the past decade or so, decade and a half. Uh, of sort of marketization, privatization, uh, and autonomy. Uh, can you maybe kind of describe sort of, um, uh, how, how you sort of potentially been attacked maybe, or, uh, criticized from, from these, um, from this paradigm? Yeah. Yeah. Some of this stuff has been weirdly misguided. You know, people that don't really have a sense of what, what the issue is have attacked us. Um, but, you know, there's other people that have quite an interest in this. I mean, let's be frank. There's a lot of policymakers and philanthropic foundations that are quite interested in funding an education reform movement that's built around vouchers and charter schools. Um, do I need to explain what those things are to your to your readers today? Um, it, maybe if you want to just explain vouchers. I think people sort of get have a handle on charter schools. Vouchers is still something that I think a large part of the country uh, hasn't hasn't really seen. Yeah, I mean, I think you've said before in your program that charter schools are essentially um, publicly funded but privately or independently managed schools. Right. Vouchers are, are programs um, that are um, using usually public money uh, to uh, fund students to go to private schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and those programs are, tend to be relegated to a particular city or state, um, but they're very controversial. Uh, They've been they've been ruled to be constitutional, but um, in a lot of state constitutions, there's still the question of whether or not this is um, public funding for sectarian schools, for example, or whether or not it's undercutting right. local control. So there's been big debates about um, not just the, the the ethics and constitutionality of this, but also a uh, question of whether or not that works. Uh, are, are students who get a voucher? to leave a public school and go to a private school, are they then doing better mm-hmm. than, um, than they would otherwise? And it's been a very hotly contested area of research. So were you uh, able to uh, actually in, in the data pinpoint the students who had vouchers and who, who went to uh, private school or is it more generalizable? No, it was more generalizable. We're, we're, we're looking at, um, uh, broader averages here about different types of students. So we're, we don't isolate here students that used uh, vouchers to go to private schools. Um, but this gets back to the question of the controversy you asked about earlier. Uh, char- I should say voucher advocates have been pretty upset about our findings, mm-hmm. and they point to voucher studies that they've done 
to dispute our findings. And it's really, that's an apples and oranges kind of comparison. We're looking at broader averages across the country of nationally representative samples of public and private schools um, and showing those, showing in there that, that actually private schools are, are doing, they're underperforming. Right. That really cuts to the heart of the, the voucher question because the, the, the voucher argument is made on the assumption that private schools do better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these findings really uh, undercut that that claim. So the, these these arguments that uh, while the voucher studies show that that, um, that our findings are incorrect is just simply hogwash because um, those are those tend to be smaller local studies of um, I'm sorry voucher programs in specific cities where they're not looking at nationally representative samples. And those studies have been highly hotly contested. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even if we take at face value the claims that they make, which you know there's reasons not to do that, but even if we do accept their arguments that, that vouchers work, they're looking at non-representative samples of, of public schools um, that are, you know, in general doing a pretty bad job in those cities um, and because students want to leave them and go to other, other non-representative samples of private schools, um, which these families think are doing better so that you can't really generalize from those, those studies then. So, right. yeah, it's, it's, it, I think it, re, it reflects the kind of the politicized nature of this argument in general. So can you kind of maybe explain a little bit, we see this, uh, the parents are, I mean, socioeconomic status is really what ex- explains the, um, the actual, when you see the uh, private school, like, you know, p- parents from a higher class. So the argument is if the parents uh, who are sending their kids with vouchers, uh, that might actually explain why uh, potentially they could be doing better in these, um, in these findings, these local findings. Can you kind of explain maybe parental effect or, or, or yeah. what parents? Yeah, that's, are- a, that's a great question. And that really gets to the heart of a lot of, a lot of um, these, these research questions. Uh, so yeah, the, the the effect of family background is pretty strong, and also that translates into the effect on a student through what's called the peer effect. You know, the effect of which peers they attend school with. Uh, that matters quite a bit, and um, that might be one of the things that explains uh, um, uh, some of these findings that students in voucher programs are doing better. Is that they're around? It's not that they're in a private school; it's that they're around a more advantaged peer group. Typically, these types of studies that the voucher advocates have been doing don't really look at that. They don't consider that. Their argument is that, well, that's just a, you know an element of the, the voucher program, and so um, it's not something that we need to distinguish. Since they randomize things anyways, they would argue that, that, that that's something that's already controlled for. Mm-hmm. But as I'm suggesting to you, um, you know, if, if we're interested in the question of whether public or private schools are doing better, that should be something worth considering because, you know, that peer effect would get diluted as we expand these programs or scale them up. Um, so, yeah, that, that matters quite a bit of what, you know, who you're sitting next to in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in a, in a kind of perverse way, there is an argument there that, um, you know, parents may want to shop around for schools based not on the type of school, but on the type of kids that go to that school. Right. I'm not endorsing that. I mean, that would be a recipe for greater segregation, but you can see the logic behind that type of, type of argument that, uh, that the parents may want to do that. Right. And I think that actually is what people kind of say uh, yeah. or criticisms of, of charter schools saying, well, 
the parents who already don't care, or maybe they're too busy to care, working multiple jobs, uh, they're just going to send their kids to sort of the, the whatever school they go to. The parents that actually do care are going to look around, and those since those parents would have already cared, that's what was sort of more important anyway to begin with. Yeah, you can tell they care by by definition because they made the effort to make the choice. Um, and you know, we know that parents' interest in education and the, how much they value it is, is a great predictor of how that student's going to do in, in school. Right. Um, but yeah, as, as you're as you're indicating that you know who you sit next to in, in the class matters a lot, and so. You know, parents in some ways are, are, you know, are smart to look at raw test scores because those are a great reflection of just the socioeconomic background of the students. Mm-hmm. Um, so they tell you more about who attends the school than the effect of the school itself. Once you start to, to um, analyze those those test scores and take into account demographic factors, I think that's a more important mm-hmm. way, a better measure of the effects of the school itself, right. not just a reflection of who goes to the school. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, so coming to thinking like, well, how do we sort of uh, have some policy prescriptions or recommendations? You can't change parents. You can't really change uh, who you're sitting next to in school, potentially. Uh, So what are some things that that you recommend out of these findings or that you think could work uh, in in improving uh, general education? Yeah, and and I should say that... um you know, you can change policy. That's one area where you can have an effect. And I think this book was written more for um, people coming at it from a policy perspective and, and less so for, you know, parents that are trying to decide, should I send my kid to a, a local private school or a local public school? Mm-hmm. We, we don't say as much to people with those types of questions. But um, we don't come up with a list of recommendations because that's, that's not the point of this book. But I can tell you that there are some lessons to be had from, mm-hmm. um, from, from the data. For one thing, you, know, you really have to question the underlying assumptions behind the current education reform movement. Um, it's really based on the idea that private schools are better or that schools with private school-like characteristics are better. Here I'm speaking specifically of charter schools and the argument, you know, that giving them more autonomy and allowing, allowing them to act like private schools would be beneficial to the kids. There's a lot of reasons in our data to suggest that's actually not true and that autonomy might be a problem. Um, when you put those uh, put those schools in a more competitive environment, they use that autonomy in ways that are actually detrimental to the, the um, education of the children in their in their schools. So that that's a concern. Um, I would also say that uh, our data show that actually some pretty good predictors of, of student achievement or higher student achievement are things like having certified teachers. Mm. Uh, that, you know, that there's been a controversy around that as well, but our data suggests that actually certified teachers make a difference, that you know, they're, they're one of the things that leads to greater student achievement, it would appear. Um, so yeah, there, there are things that, that um, I think we can point to, but I would say that by and large, this is more of a warning about um, the, the assumption undergirding the current reform movement and, and suggesting that perhaps uh, we need to rethink that. Those assumptions may be misguided. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's it's kind of interesting. We're in, a, I think, a, an interesting time for policy and education because we had George W. Bush, Republican, who came in with No Child Left Behind, and then now with um, Obama and, and Arnie Duncan, we have uh, Race to the Top. Can you kind yeah. of talk about how maybe some of these policies are, aren't really matching up with, with what is reported by the numbers? 
Yeah, I mean, and you're correct that there's more continuity than any kind of difference between recent administrations. I mean, going back to the Clinton administration, the George W. Bush administration, now the Obama administration, you're seeing a lot of enthusiasm for things like um, charter schools, although there's somewhat more disagreement about questions such as vouchers. But there's still this this overriding um, uh, assumption that, you know, private-style education is better and that if we can expand charter schools, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. So you see that in No Child Left Behind, for example. You know, charter school status is a sanction that could be placed on, on failing public schools. Um, and certainly race to the top as well, we, you know, required states to um, raise or get rid of the cap on charter schools um, uh, in order to be competitive for, for that funding. Mm-hmm. So there, you know, there's definitely this assumption there, but the data are not supporting this. I mean, very few studies are, uh, I, I don't know of any of the serious studies that are, are finding the charter schools are, are, you know, on average outperforming public schools to any significant degree. So it's interesting that this whole, you know, uh, reform movement from the federal government and from a lot of philanthropies is so optimistic about charter schools. So do you think it's just getting caught up into sort of um, just the general neoliberal uh, uh, paradigm that we've been seeing in pretty much every policy today? Or, or what, what do you think was the motivation? Yeah, I think it fits very, very nicely. And not just in the U.S., but globally, that there's just this assumption that, you know, governments can't do things correctly um, and that in general it's better to contract out or privatize those functions to the private sector because they're thought to do a better job for less. Mm-hmm. When you look at the data, there's a lot of reasons to, to, to question that. I mean, that, that certainly doesn't hold up in a lot of areas. But and as we argue, especially in the concluding chapter of this book, it could be that education in particular is, is quite an um, anomaly here, that the, the logic of markets does not work uh, very well in the uh, public education sector that's dedicated to things like equity. And that, and that it could be that, that um, the government's actually not doing a bad job. You know, I'm not talking just about the federal government, but, you know, we're talking about public schools that are administered by local education authorities and through states and that type of thing. And um, actually, you know, as, as we've found out and other people have since uh, affirmed, uh, public schools are, are doing okay um, relative to uh, uh, demographically comparable private schools. Right. I think that maybe is an important concept to uh, to think about in that uh, you're not necessarily saying that this should be a federal government debate or a uh, local government debate, which I think it is where a, a real divide in sort of the right and left thinking uh, lies. Uh, this could actually inform um, either side or sort of support either side of the argument. Forgetting about, you know, the, the charter school and all, and all of that idea, but at least considering uh, how the American uh, public education system has been set up essentially since, since we've established the country, very localized control. And uh, you kind of say that, well, that actually potentially that's, has been working well. Yeah. And I would say on average, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's, there's major prop of pockets of chronic failure in the U.S. public education. Sure. Um, you know, those tend to be in areas that are, you, know, you see um, high levels of poverty. Um, you know, people want to beat up on teachers recently. That's been quite a theme, but in fact, you know, Teachers are a relatively minor factor when explaining the variance in test scores for students. And we do know that poverty is a very excellent mm-hmm. predictor of, of, of school failure. Um, but, 
Yeah, I, I would think I, I think I would focus less on the left-right um, divide. I, I think it's less helpful in a case like this because you do get, you know, a lot of conservatives that are very much in favor of, of their local public schools um, and uh, are concerned about bringing market mechanisms such as choice into that equation. And you do get a lot of liberals who see markets as a solution, you know, a way to um, enhance equity and improve performance for those schools. Um, so I think the, those left-right dichotomies kind of fall apart here. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's, yeah, it's a general um, ethos right now. And a lot of uh, policymakers, but also a lot of philanthropies like the Gates Foundation, I wouldn't say they're necessarily conservative, but they're very excited about the idea of charter schools. And as Bill Gates has said, you know, in 10 years or so, we'll know whether or not we're right. <laughs> He's, he, he seems... They have a lot of faith in this. Mm. You have to put a lot of money behind it. Yeah, absolutely. But our, our data suggests it's kind of misguided. Sure, sure. Can you maybe talk about uh, something else that's, I think, uh, very similar to all this, but the, the high-stakes testing that we're seeing uh, more with with uh, federal policy today. Um, can you kind of talk how that factors into all this? Yeah, I mean, I think this goes back, um, you know, a couple of decades and, and – uh, Essentially, there's this focus on standardized testing as an indicator for um, for school success or failure. Uh, and I would say Sarah and I, in offering the book, we're suspicious of that as being the best measure. There's multiple purposes for our public education system, and how kids perform on a standardized test is one one indicator, but certainly not the be all and end all. But it's often treated that way in a lot of policy discourse. Yeah. Um, certainly when you look at like Mochella behind, for example, um, there's such an emphasis on standardized test scores and increasingly for things like, uh, you know, uh, judging or evaluating the effectiveness of individual teachers, there's a focus on that. So our book really deals with that because that's a measure that reformers have held out as being, you know, the gold standard or the currency for understanding um, school failure success. We don't endorse that, but we are interested in showing that, or our data do show that using that measure that they hold out um, by their own standards, uh, those reformed assumptions aren't necessarily standing up to scrutiny. Mm. But yeah, parents have many other um, goals for, for schools as well, and they have to look at what's a um, you know convenient uh, distance from their home and what, what matches their values and things like that that are often more important to them than how their children perform on standardized tests. Hmm. Right. But we're, 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 like I said before, we're particularly interested in this from a policymaker perspective, and that's one of the measures that policymakers have at their disposal, or they're used to um, to judge the, the, the success or failure of their uh, policy. Sure. Well, speaking of policymakers, how has this book been received uh, by policymakers? Have you talked to any, advised any, uh, with some of these findings, what what are they saying to you about these findings? Yeah, a few, and actually, that's been a kind of a bipartisan reception as well. I think there has been some genuine interest on both sides of the aisle about, well, you know, what what's the data that you use? What's the basis for your findings? That type of thing. But um, in general, I'd say uh, it's been much more so with researchers uh, mm-hmm. who've been more interested in these findings because, uh, as we know from from other work, policymakers are not always really focused on what the research says on these issues. And that's actually another line of the work I do is looking at how policymakers in education use or don't use research evidence. You know, so it's interesting compared to other fields. Um, you know, I'd say that there's a, 
there's there's not a close relationship between research evidence and policymaking and education compared to some other areas. So this is something I've been working at working on with uh, Liz DeBray, who's a professor at Georgia, and Janelle Scott, who's a professor at Berkeley. We've been um, interviewing policymakers and, and, and trying to understand how they they use research or don't use it. Okay. It will, uh, that, that's certainly something, uh, I think in, important when, when you have a book like this, that's such a sort of powerful potential tool, uh, to see if, you know, it, is it actually getting through to the people that, uh, can make, you know, can make or break the decisions. Yeah. yeah. Um, if you could, so you, you, you mentioned a little bit about some of the criticisms, uh, in, in that you've gotten. Um, for maybe some of the data set or sort of how you sort of interpreted. Um, what has been some of the response that you sort of have, have levied back to um, some of the critics who, who would say that maybe it's too, this is sort of too narrowly defined and, you know, private schools sort of do have different curricula. Uh, what sort of uh, response did you have there for them? Yeah, I can, I'm happy to talk about that. I mean, um, one of the issues that's come up is that that we looked only at mathematics, and and, um, and people suggested that we did so out of some kind of conspiracy to only focus on on areas where students are, are doing better in, in public schools. That's simply wrong. I mean, first of all, we we have in our authorship here we have some some expertise there, the nationally renowned expert in mathematics education. Um, so that's an area where we, we know something. But even more importantly, um, mathematics is seen as a better indicator of school effects um, because students tend to learn that subject area in school as opposed to, say, reading, um, where they often learn that at home. Uh, parents read to their children, and it's not unusual to see kids showing up for the first day of school knowing how to read at some level. So to, to measure reading would often uh, confuse the findings because then you're, what essentially you're doing is measuring family effects, and that's what we're trying to uh, um, isolate your school effect. Sure. So, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a, you know, we're, we're, I'm quite happy to, to focus on mathematics. And people on both sides of this debate, co-voucher people and, and people in favor of public schools, have, have agreed that mathematics is a better indicator mm-hmm. of school effect. Okay. Um, some other people have asked why we didn't look at high school grades here. We're looking just at um, grades four and eight. And, um, for example, John Stossel took a shot at this and said, well, you know, why didn't you include 12th grade? Because you know, that would that have reversed your finding. And the simple matter is 12th grade data weren't collected by the federal government. Here. So, right. again, it wasn't some kind of conspiracy on our part it's that we looked at the data that were available. Sure. I, I can definitely understand that. You know, it would be great to have that data, yeah. but that's not. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and then the last thing is, is, as I mentioned earlier, this idea of well, um, well, voucher studies that, that some voucher advocates have, have conducted um, tend to, to show that um, private schools are doing better. And as I, you know, I mentioned that earlier in, in our discussion, you just can't make that claim um, from those studies. But but I don't think that's actually the uh, point of those those uh, arguments. I think you know I, I actually see some some parallels here to what's happening in the global warming debate and climate change, uh, that, you know, most scientists see, um, uh, you know, human-caused um, impact on, on the climate. 
politics, but you get a small minority who are often funded by, you know, the, the carbon industry. Mm-hmm. And it's their sole job is to kind of muddy the waters and to introduce doubt into the debate. And so they're, they're often funded by these petroleum-funded think tanks, and, you know, they have a Ph.D. behind their name, and they write op-eds in areas that, you know, not necessarily their area of expertise. But, but they introduce doubt. And I, I, I think that that's also what's happening here. We, we came up with these findings and since they've been affirmed by researchers at um, ETS, you know, at, at Princeton and Stanford and, and Notre Dame, come up to similar findings. Also, I would say including reading, by the way. And, um, you know, it's not like Notre Dame is an anti-Catholic institution against Catholic education. Right. But then what you get is, you know, this small group of researchers who are funded by some of these pro-voucher organizations, and they want to dispute our findings that, you know, I think largely they want to introduce doubt, um, even, there's, even though there's a growing consensus here, their job is simply to muddy the waters. Mm-hmm. You, you actually mentioned uh, uh, Catholic schools. I've seen some studies where they've actually separated uh, private from Catholic schools. We do that here. You do that too. Okay. Um and, and and there's been where they and they found the same results I think with with private schools not being different from public schools but that actually private or sorry uh, Catholic schools actually were um, so you didn't see any Catholic school effect uh, in your well yeah um, we we looked at two different data sets we looked at NAEP and then we also looked at a longitudinal data set called called Eccles early childhood longitudinal study. So they were able to trace the progress of, of students in these different types of schools over time and look at the effects of different schools. And we did pull out Catholic schools in both cases. Um, and, you know, um, as a as a, um, a researcher, but also myself as a product of, of some Catholic education, I'm not out to bash Catholic schools, but the data suggests that they're um, not doing as well as, as we might hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of, of raw scores, uh, if you look at uh, the, the baseline scores for students entering the different types of schools, um, Catholic school students are, are pretty much statistically indistinguishable from mm-hmm. students in public schools when they start school. Right. Um, but they're surpassed by students in, in other private schools, mm-hmm. you know, other types of private schools. But then when you look at their, their growth over time, um, public schools have pretty much narrowed the gap then with other types of private schools. They've, they're now at, at the end of the study pretty much equal to students in other private schools, except the Catholic school students have fallen behind them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm not, I don't, again, I don't mean to pick on the, the Catholic schools, but our other data also suggests that's, um, that they're performing at a level beneath demographically comparable students in public school. Okay. But there are worse types of schools. And yeah. when you look at the data, um, especially in fourth grade, it looks like charter schools are, are um, similar to Catholic schools in terms of their in terms of their performance. But conservative Christian schools, which are a very fast-growing sector of schools, are, are the worst performing. Mm. Students who attend those schools are about a year behind relative to demographically comparable students in, other, in, in uh, public schools. Mm. Okay. De- definitely uh, an interesting finding for sure. Can, can you maybe describe... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, what was, can you uh, say that one more time? Yeah, Lutheran schools seem to be doing okay. I see. Okay. Well, so if any, any Lutheran listeners, uh, you, yeah. can, you can take that. 
Um, Thank you, Matt. Can can you maybe talk a little bit about, or just maybe explain uh, what what does a, a a good public school look like? What what are the general characteristics of of a, of a, of a, a good public school? Right. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. Knowing that we're focusing here on uh, on mathematics, what we can say is that they tend to um, you know have uh, better trained teachers who um, who have professional development in their subject area, who are more attuned to the, um, the current research about how students are learning, and the, the curriculum that they're using reflects that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, again, we didn't write this for parents, but if I was a parent moving into a new community um, and looking at different schools, one of the things that I would want to do is know what types of um, uh, curriculum are being, are, are being used in the different schools, and are these up-to-date? Um, when you look at the Catholic and other private schools, they tend to more often use very traditional approaches. Kids are sitting in rows. Um, they're using uh, uh, curricula that are based on the idea that, that mathematics is something that you memorize in order to learn. But what we're seeing in the, the more successful public schools are kids discussing mathematical ideas. Um, you know, they're, they're doing data analysis and problem solving. They think of mathematics as something that, that you do, um, that, you know, that, that you engage in rather than that you just memorize. Um, you know, th- those are important distinctions. Right, right. Okay, well, if you can give us uh, maybe uh, one thought or a couple thoughts on just, you know, what to take away or, or, or closing uh, ideas on, on the book. Sure. Yeah. But, um, you know, we have these different kind of models for how we want to do public education. And I discussed this quite a bit. And I think the second chapter, as far as, um, you know, the idea of education as a market or education as, as a government, um, a government function or is education more of a science. And, and we have these kind of conflicting assumptions about how we should do public education based on these, these models. Um, and we've moved recently more towards education as a market. Mm-hmm. Based on parental choice and competition, but we're showing here that the, the, um, the evidence underlying that that uh, assumption doesn't really hold up. So we hear this constant refrain recently about schools need more autonomy, and you know I'm not against autonomy. I'm a professional, and I like to you know have some professional autonomy as well. But when we when we add this idea of giving schools more autonomy in a competitive climate. We often see schools that are using that autonomy to make bad choices, um, things like choosing outdated curricula uh, because it appeals to parents, even though it doesn't really serve the students as well. Or another thing, unfortunately, using that autonomy to avoid serving more difficult to educate students or students that are, are more costly to educate. Mm-hmm. That should be a big concern of just giving blank check autonomy. The competitive incentives behind that sometimes really, I think, lead to perverse outcomes, which don't really... Uh, support the idea of public education. Sure, sure. All right. Well, uh, so we usually have final last question on, on uh, New Books Network. W- what's next for you? Uh, what's what's an upcoming project that you have? I know you mentioned uh, the policymakers, but is, is that sort of uh, the, the next thing coming up, or, or, or what are you working on? Yeah, I've been working on that with, uh, as I mentioned, a couple of colleagues, Liz DeBray and Janelle Scott. I'm looking at how policymakers are using research evidence and that's um, that's starting to produce some interesting results. And then also I've been focusing uh, on uh, school segregation and how uh, different uh, factors contribute to school segregation or integration, um, not just on race, but also on social class and ability and that type of thing. And I'm looking at that more internationally. And it's 
that's been uh, yeah quite interesting to, to, to look at that from a choice context as well. Why, yeah. why do parents choose certain types of school? Yeah, that sounds uh, fascinating. Definitely, uh, we want to be on the lookout for those. Uh, all right. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Chris Lubinsky. Uh, and just I want to tell my audience to go check out The Public School Advantage, Why Public Schools Outperform Private Schools, University of Chicago Press. Uh, and we'll provide a link, of course, on, on our website for that as well. And uh, thank you guys for joining us. And I uh, hope you learned something.